0: listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good to be here and see all of you here uh, this morning. I'm excited to preach today and excited to uh, join together after our service for uh, some great conversation uh, around this topic of how we can serve our community. But that'll be coming up later. But my uh, title of my sermon this morning, as you can see on the screen, is A Becoming People. I actually stole this from uh, Pastor Wade's letterhead from his Old church in Simi Valley, he showed me their, their slogan was a becoming people, and I said, That's my next sermon title right there. Um, yeah, I've been preaching on this 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 idea of becoming. You know, a few weeks ago we 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 talked about becoming Christian, and we contrasted that idea of becoming Christian with the concept of becoming a Christian. How many of you know there's a difference between becoming a Christian and becoming Christian? You know, you can become a Christian in 20 seconds or less, but becoming Christian is a lifelong expedition. And that's what we talked about. And that's really what Jesus is calling to when he says, follow me. And then uh, in my last sermon, the title was The Journey of Becoming. and We talked about how when Jesus calls us to follow him, he has a particular becoming in mind for each one of us. And it's very important that we understand in this post-industrial consumeristic age that we live in that disciples are not mass-produced. Disciples are handcrafted one at a time. And so that was the focus. Well, today we're going to talk about being a becoming people. And you'll see where I'm taking it in just a moment. But let's look at our text uh, this weekend, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. I think this is my first time to open up a sermon here where we're not in the Gospels, but we will be going to the Gospels a little bit later. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. The Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And as he's winding it down, here's what he says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that If I am delayed, you may may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Just in your own mind, just highlight that word household. I think it's a very important term. And he says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Now let's pause just for a moment and really consecrate these next few moments to the Lord and worship. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for your presence that we can even sense tangibly in this room right now. I thank you for this opportunity to gather with all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And to, today, in this very moment, our worship continues. And as we, as we listen, I pray that each one of us would listen deeply beyond just the level of human communication I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break through every barrier, that we as an act of worship would just set aside everything else that may be going on in our lives, anything that could potentially distract us internally, externally, we just set all of that aside and we consecrate this time to you. This is a sacred moment and we ask you, Lord, to speak to the very core of our beings and may we receive your word deeply, that it may take root and sprout, and eventually bear fruit for your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As many of you know, um, I come to you from the New Orleans area. That's where I was born and raised uh, my entire childhood and teenage life. I lived just outside of New Orleans in a, in a small town called Luling, Louisiana. And uh, something you may not know about New Orleans, New Orleans is sometimes referred to as Hollywood South. Uh, We we have a burgeoning uh, entertainment community in New Orleans, lots of films. Increasingly, more and more films are are being filmed right there in that area. Uh, You know, tax breaks and things of that sort has attracted the film companies. And and we also have, uh, for whatever reason, probably more than one reason, we have uh, all kinds of, you know, entertainers, movie stars, singers, artists, uh, writers who have made New Orleans their home. Uh, or at least made it a second home or a third home. Uh, people like, over the years, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, uh, Nicholas Cage, Sandra Bullock, Reese Witherspoon, on and on it goes. And uh, so it's a very unique place. But one of the famous authors who has lived in New Orleans for a long time, and you, you, many of you may recognize this person, is a woman named Anne Rice. Anne Rice, probably most familiar for her famous book, uh, Interview with a Vampire, which later would become a movie with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. For most of Anne Rice's life, she was a pretty staunch atheist. And then somewhere down the line, converted to Christianity. In the late 90s, she embraced Catholicism and uh, pretty devoted uh, Christian. The, the tone and the content of her work shifted. She began to write along the themes of Christ and Christianity. Very interesting stuff. But a few years ago, Ann Rice, in a Facebook post, made an announcement about her her faith in God, and she, she declared that though she still identifies as a Christian and she still is endeavoring to follow Jesus as best she understands, she said, I'm done with church. I'm totally done with institutional church. Uh, just to, to give you a line from her post, she, she wrote this. She said, I'm remaining a follower of Christ, but leaving the church. I love Christ, but can no longer handle the company of his disciples. Her statement, I think, is representative of what I think is a, it's an increasingly common sentiment amongst many people. Um, We're living in an age where I think many, many Christians in general don't seem to have a very high view of church and the role that it should play in their lives. Much has been made in recent years about this statistical phenomenon that has been called the rise of the nuns and duns. I want to show you on the screen this, um, this chart that I think will demonstrate for you what I'm talking about. So as you look at this chart, it represents two categories of Americans as it relates to church involvement. The first group of people ha- has been called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. The nuns. These are people who would say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. I'm not Christian, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim, Hindu, you know, Jewish, I'm, I'm none of those things. I have no religious affiliation, the nuns. And then secondly, we have a group called the duns. And the duns are are a wide-ranging group, but this would include folks like Anne Rice, who would say, you know what, I still uh, self-identify as a Christian, but I am done with church. I'm done with organized religion. I am done with institutional church. So you have the nuns, and you have the duns. And then there's a third group of people that I'm just gonna add to our conversation this morning. And these are uh, Christians who would still retain this vague sense that church is important and they still have a church that they would consider their home church and yet their level of involvement and engagement with their church increasingly is becoming less and less. I think we've seen this especially over these last two years uh, in the midst of this pandemic. You know, in early 2020 when the pandemic first began, um, you know, the nation really just shut down um, every, everything, businesses, every, everybody shut down and churches shut down. My church in Louisiana just shut down as far as our actual physical gatherings on the weekends. We, we stopped. Uh, just about everybody did that except for a few obstinate folks. But, but we, we, we got out of this rhythm of coming to a building and joining together with people physically on a weekly basis and, and understandably so. And I, as a pastor, I got out of that rhythm, and I had to start to learn how to preach to a camera lens, which is something I hope to never have to do ever again in my life. But we shut down for a few months, and and we got out of that rhythm of meeting together on on a regular basis. And then in the coming months, you know, as circumstances changed, as, you know, eventually a vaccine, the vaccines would become available and different things began to change, things began to open up once again. And we started once again having our, our gatherings, our weekly gatherings. And yet there are many people who, before the pandemic, were in this rhythm of regularly attending church, regularly engaging and being a part of their church community, but once things began to open up, there are many folks who never got back into that rhythm and still haven't gotten back into that rhythm of weekly gathering with a family of believers. And understand, I'm not including here. I'm not including people who have you know significant health risk who need to stay home. I totally affirm that. And I think that's a wise thing. I'm talking about those folks who, who otherwise would be happy to go to a baseball game or or the supermarket, or anywhere else, but for whatever reason, they just haven't gotten back into that rhythm of being a part of a, a church family on a on a weekly and even daily uh, process uh, uh, rhythm. And so, for whatever reason, there there are all kinds of variables that are at play here. I want to, uh, in fact, I want to recognize first of all, even before I go further, that that there are many people who may belong to these categories, the nuns and the duns, who have you know, significant critiques of local churches or a denomination or even just a a movement. And they have some critique. And some of these critiques, let me just say, are very actually on target and very profound. And I want to first acknowledge that. And then there's there are people who have experienced, let's face it, severe hurt in local churches. They've experienced abuse in a local church. And I want to recognize that, and I just wanna state here before I go further that, you know, that's really a whole different conversation for me beyond the scope of this, this message. There are people who have experienced spiritual abuse and maybe perhaps for at least a season, they need to step away just for their own emotional and mental health, okay? That's a whole different conversation. But all of these different variables are at play, and I think regardless of the reasons and regardless of the variables, one thing I think we have all observed is that for whatever reason, America as a society, we are becoming more and more secular and less and less religious, less and less church-centric. Unless you think this is not altogether a negative thing, think again. There are prominent, top-shelf sociologists and political scientists who range across the entire political spectrum who are all saying the same thing just to give you a representative quote, there's a sociologist named Timothy Carney, and and here's what he says. He says, the unchurching of America is at the root of America's economic and social problems. I think what he means is the less that we gather together regularly with a local body of people, whether it's in a church or elsewhere, the less we gather together like this as a local community, the more individualistic we become in our life and in the way we think. Therefore, the less concerned we become with the common good. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you that God's design in this world is to build his people through the body of Christ that takes place in local communities, in actual ordinary local churches just like this one. One of the things that we've been hitting hard these last few weeks, because it's so foundational and so important, we've got to understand God's dream, God's vision, God's mission, what God's up to right now, is not just simply to save disembodied souls for the afterlife in the future somewhere. No, God's got a mission and a vision for what the world can and should be like right now. Pastor Wade preached last week about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God's already been ushered in upon the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated in the world, and God's kingdom is growing and it's expanding. So we've got to understand, God has a vision for human life and society right here and right now, and our role is we need to come under the reign of Christ and learn how to embrace, perceive, and carry out God's agenda in the world. But what I want to speak to you about this morning is that the epicenter for God's vision in the world is the local church. God's vision is not confined to the local church, but the local church, village church, and churches like ours, we are at the center of God's work in the world today. Amen? Amen. I want to give you a quote from Cyprian, one of the early church fathers, Cyprian of Carthage. Look at what he writes. He he had some very strong thoughts here. Cyprian says, "He He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. He who gathers elsewhere than in the church scatters the church of Christ. Christianity isn't simply meant to be believed. It's meant to be lived, shared, eaten, spoken, and enacted in the presence of other people. Cyprian also said, he said, a very provocative statement, one Christian is no Christian at all. No matter how hard I try, I cannot be a Christian on my own. It's an oxymoron. I need a community. I need a a church of people who are hiking the Jesus way with me. Let me state it like this. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. To be in Christ is to be part of the body of Christ. To be a part of the body of Christ is to be a part of an actual, ordinary, local church family, just like this one, where every single weekend I show up and I'm a part of it, and I engage in a local church, and a local body of believers. There's a whole lot more to Christianity than just that. I understand that. There's a whole lot more to the Christian faith than just simply being a part of a local church. But listen, it's never less than that. And one of the things we've got to be very careful about, especially as we start getting into the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount over the next few months, we're going to see very clearly that Jesus was very subversive. I'm going to do my best to be as faithful to the, the unvarnished Jesus as I can and it may get me in trouble with folks, but I came here to be faithful to Jesus. That's all I care about. And I think what we're going to see in Jesus's vision for the world, Jesus was deeply subversive, deeply counterintuitive, deeply countercultural. I mean, there's a reason why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Romans all wanted this man dead. You're right. He wasn't just a nice guy with a smile on his face doing nice things. He was presenting a prophetic critique, a powerful critique against the way that the world was being presently run and the way that the people that were leading the world perceived it correctly and wanted him dead. So Jesus was subversive. Jesus was, you could even call him a revolutionary. But the one thing that Jesus wasn't, he wasn't anti-institutional. And that's what I would try to talk with Ann Rice about and, and others who think like this is that Jesus was a deeply religious man. Jesus, as the Gospels present him to us, was a man who was deeply formed and shaped by the institutional practices of the Jewish faith, culture, and religion. When we read Jesus in the Gospels, when we read the, about Jesus' life, we see that every single Sabbath, he was in the synagogue, gathered with the the Jewish believers to worship the Father together. Jesus was one who memorized scripture and he prayed the Jewish prayer book, the book of Psalms. Jesus was one who assembled his life around a religious calendar, feasts, and festivals. He was a deeply religious man. And so, if you and I are interested in following Jesus, we're going to end up following him into sacred buildings just like this one, filled with lots of sinners. Sometimes rather conspicuous sinners. But that never seemed to bother Jesus. So we've got to be very careful about a mentality that says, I want Jesus, but I don't want Jesus' church. I want Jesus, I want the head, but I don't want the body. I want Jesus, but I don't want his friends. I I want to have my own version of Christian spirituality without getting enmeshed in institutional church we got to be very careful about that type of of mentality because any Christian spirituality that does not have institutional structure and support very quickly becomes self-indulgent and one-generational. I'm just going to tell you what I've observed in my life. I'm not saying this is a rule. There may be a few exceptions, but I'm going to tell you what I've seen over and over again in my life is that if we adopt this mindset that says, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm done with church. I'm going to do my own, I'm going to have my own private spirituality with Jesus. Your children might become Christians, but your grandchildren won't be. Let me explain what I mean. I want to show you a picture on the screen. This picture that you're looking at, this little church, this is the church I grew up in. I spent my entire childhood and teenage life in this building. And, and as we look at this picture, I want to I talk about this church for a moment. This church originally was called Booty Assembly of God in Little Booty, Louisiana. That, that word is spelled B-O-U-T-T-E, just in case you're wondering. Now it's, now it's called Life Church, but... Um, <laughs> But this church was, in the 1950s, it was planted by a group of four couples who all traveled south from South Arkansas, and they all settled in a brand new town called Luling, Louisiana, and they were new employees of Lion Oil Company, which would eventually become Monsanto. But one of those four couples was my grandparents, Joe and Louise Broach, and these four couples got together and they planted a church because they had no place to gather. And so they planted a church in the 1950s, and as the city grew, as this new town grew, and as the church congregation grew in the early 1970s, they they realized we need to build a brand new building. They had been meeting in this old, run-down wooden shack, and yet they had this property next door on Highway 90, and so they pulled together their resources, and they built this building for something like $25,000. And they built this building, and this is where my mom was raised, In church. She spent her whole life in this church. It's where my grandparents went to church for 60, 70 years. My great-grandmother, I can show you where my great-grandmother sat. And this is where I was raised my entire childhood. And, And listen, when I look at this picture, everywhere I look, I have memories. I can remember moments. I can remember places in this room where I had profound spiritual encounters with the Lord, I can, re- I can just remember things that may not on the surface appear spiritual, but they're deeply memorable and formative and, and precious to me. Like when, when you look at this back corner to the right, to the back right of that sanctuary, in that little section, that's where every Sunday night, we used to have Sunday night service. Every Sunday night, my entire family, my grandparents, my aunts, uncles, my cousins, all of us, like it's like 30 people, we all sat in that section. And as soon as the pastor finished preaching and the service was over, all of us little grandkids would rush over to my granddaddy and beg him to take us to McDonald's down the road. (laughs) And of course, he would. He couldn't resist us. And we knew that. So we all piled into our cars, and we rode half a mile down the road to McDonald's, and we spent a couple hours there, ate whatever we wanted, you know, ordered anything we wanted, and ate it all, and then had some ice cream on top of that, and then we'd play on the playground, had a blast, and my granddaddy would pay for everybody. And we did that for a while. We did it every Sunday night, and eventually he got to the point where he was like, you know what, let's just do every fourth Sunday of the month. But I look at this picture, I look at this room, and I can show you all around this room, just memories, like where this little girl is standing there. I don't know any of these people. I haven't been in this church for years. I After I graduated from high school, I I moved away. But where this little girl is standing, that's where my little baby brother Darren was dedicated as a baby. I remember standing there. I was eight years old, and little Darren was dedicated, and now he's 32 years old. I look at this church platform. That's where my grandmother, Louise, played the organ every single week. This is where my Aunt Nancy played the piano every single week. That's where I learned how to play the bass guitar. I learned, I got a bass guitar for Christmas, and I was in church playing two weeks later. And that's how I learned, on the job. (laughs) On that platform is where I sang in church for the very first time, four years old. I can remember singing a duet with my mother. I remember the song, The King of Who I Am was the name of it. On that platform is where I preached my very first sermon, 13 years old, ripe old age, I still have the cassette tape, the recording of that sermon. Can't bear to listen to it. It's de- depressing. <laughs> and then two years ago, that's, that's the platform where I stood and preached the funeral for my grandmother. The same woman who was part of that group that planted this very church and built this building. See, this building that you're looking at is not just another building to me. It's a sacred place. It's a sacred building that has collected stories for many years. Not just mine, but, but for so many people. I, I've heard this statement all my life. I've heard people say things like, you know, the church is not a building. The church is the people. I've heard that, especially in the pandemic. The church is not a building. The church is the people. I know what people mean when they say that. And there's a sense in which I agree. I understand what they mean. But buildings collect stories. Like this building right here that you're sitting in. For so many of you who have been a part of Village Church for a while, for years, some of you decades, this is not for you just another building in Burbank. This is a sacred place. And all around this room, you have precious memories. You can remember the faces and the names of people who who went before you, the patriarchs and matriarchs of this church, and, and where they sat in this room. And you can remember places in this auditorium where you have had powerful times with God in prayer and in worship. You can remember looking up at this platform and and hearing a certain sermon, a certain word that was given that just deeply resonated with you that you've never forgotten. Some of you were baptized on this stage. All around this room, there are stories that belong to so many people. But you see, long before we got here, somebody had a vision to plant this church, And there were people who sacrificed and pulled together their resources to build a building here. Some people built it with their own hands. And so we're all products of this received faith. I want to show you this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And Paul's writing it to Timothy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you. You know, another one of these common cliche statements I've heard throughout my life that I don't fully resonate with. I've heard people say things like this, God has no grandchildren. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? God has no grandchildren. And I, again, I understand what people mean when they say that. What they mean is that each one of us, we need to have our own walk with Jesus. We need to have our own personal relationship with Jesus. Totally get it. Totally agree with that. But I think what we can lose in the midst of that sentiment is the reality that Christianity is indeed a received faith. I didn't become a Christian out of thin air. And I don't get to just make it up however I want. This is a faith that has been faithfully preserved and handed down to me. From generations of people, in my case, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my parents. And even if you're here and, and you are the first person in your family to walk with Jesus, somebody handed this thing to you. From the very beginning, the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection preserved this story, preserved this movement, handed it to others, who handed it to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation on down the line for 2,000 years. And you and I are the recipients of this precious faith that's been handed to us and preserved all these many years. The only way to pass on a faith to our children's children, listen to me carefully, is to, among other things, raise them in habits practices, rituals, and beliefs of that faith, all within the context of a church family and exemplified in a life that reflects that these things are of first importance. I am here today because I had a mom and a dad who forced me to go to church Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, there was no mystery where you could find little Ryan Post. You go to Boot Assembly of God, and he's going to be right there. And he's going to have a scowl on his face, and he's going to be wearing church clothes. <laughs> Y'all remember church clothes? But my mom and dad did not give me that option. They just figured, you know what, if we're going to make him go to school every day, of course we're going to make him go to church and be a part of a church family. And not only that, but my church family was multi-generational. And when I was little, when I was a teenager, I didn't always appreciate that. I always felt like, why don't we just go to a trendy church? Everybody's young, everybody's hip, everybody's it's cutting edge and I didn't appreciate what it meant to be in a multi-generational church. As a little boy, I needed to see what it looked like for grandpas and grandmas to be worshiping God with their grandchildren and their kids. I needed to see that, I needed to be a part of that. I needed to know what does it look like for a grandfather to worship Jesus. And so when I, even though I resented it as a little kid, now, when I look back, I'm so grateful that I was part of a church family growing up, and it was an integral part of who I was as a little boy, because I guarantee you I would not be on this platform today. It was exemplified for me. This is essential, this is important. Now, what is a church? I want to I talk about this for just a moment. What is a church? What constitutes a church? When I was in Bible college, I had a friend of mine that uh, we did music together. We would sometimes play together for chapel services at Southeastern. And I've stayed connected with him over the years. And recently on Twitter, I saw my friend had posted something and he said, You know, I'm still a Christian, I'm still following Jesus, but I'm done with church. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not part of organized religion, institutional church. I'm done with that. He said, I have a group of friends. There's a few friends of mine. We gather together regularly. We study the Bible. We pray. We encourage each other. And he said, that's church for me. That's my church experience. So I want to explore this topic with you. What constitutes a church from a New Testament perspective? And so we're going to do some Bible and theology this morning, okay? So I want you to put on your thinking caps with me today Nobody did it. Put on your thinking caps with me. All right? All right. We're in kids' ministry today. No. Um, and, and I want you to follow along with me. We're, we're going to even if you think you know what I'm going to be sharing, just kind of pay attention closely, because these are going to be very important statements I'm going to make. The word "church" in the New Testament is translated from the Greek word "ecclesia." Everybody say "ecclesia? Or sometimes people pronounce it ecclesia, but to me, ecclesia is easier to say. The word ecclesia predates Christianity by hundreds of years. And originally, ecclesia was not even a religious term, it was actually, believe it or not, it belonged to the world of politics. And ecclesia happened anytime a Greek polis, a Greek city state, had an official assembly of the citizens. So when all of the citizens of that city-state would gather together to have an official political assembly, that's what an ecclesia was. It may surprise you to know that the word ecclesia is also found in what you and I call the Old Testament. Now that might, some of you are thinking, well, wait a second, the Old Testament, those, those are Hebrew scriptures. They, they were they were written in Hebrew how can a greek word be found in the hebrew scriptures very astute observation on your part <laughs> but at some point in the past the hebrew scriptures were translated into the greek language and this greek translation of what you and i call the old testament is called the what anybody know septuagint good and in the septuagint in the greek translation of the old testament We find the word Ecclesia multiple times. Every time the word Ecclesia occurs in the Old Testament, it's referring to an official assembly of the citizens of God's people. The Hebrew people or later on the Israelite people, um, when they would have an official assembly and gather together, this is what would, would be called an Ecclesia. The word Ecclesia never referred to Israel as a national unit It always referred to their official gatherings, their official assemblies. In the New Testament, we see the word Ecclesia 114 times, 62 times uh, in in the letters of Paul, and almost every single time the word occurs when it's describing the gatherings, the actual official gatherings of these local church communities. So for example, I want you to stick with me, I'm going somewhere. In this passage here in 1 Corinthians 11... Verses 17 through 34, Paul is correcting some abuses that were happening in the Corinthian church surrounding communion. You know, the way that they would practice communion in the early church, they didn't have the styrofoam wafers (laughs) and the little plastic cups. They would actually have a supper. And what was happening is the wealthier people in this church somehow or another were abusing this practice and they were gobbling up all of the food and, and uh, nothing was really being left for the less fortunate in their church. And so Paul is, is writing here and he is just going after this issue in a very strong way. But multiple times he refers to their church, their experience, their gatherings. So I just want to glide through these six references that we see and I want to show you something in a moment. But look at number one. He says in verse 17, he refers to your meetings, Number two, in verse 18, he says, when you come together as a church. Number three, in verse 20, he says, so then, when you come together. Number four, in verse 22, he refers to the church of God. Number five, verse 33, he says, so then, brothers and sisters, when you gather. And then number six, verse 34, when you meet together. So Paul seems to be assuming that his readers know exactly what he's referring to when he's referring to their their church and their official gathering togethers. So what, what constitutes a church from Paul's perspective? Whatever a church is, it is, at the very least, among other things, something that is actual, recognizable, definable, regular, an official. Now watch this. This becomes especially apparent when he makes a contrast in verse 22. It's not going to be on the screen, but on verse 22, here's where Paul contrasts their official meetings with something else, and he says this in verse 22. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? And I take it to mean what Paul is saying is, listen, when you're at your house, You can choose to eat and drink with whoever you want. See, this is what I would try to explain to my friend who says, I'm done with church, but I have these these meetings on the side with a group of friends. When when we get together with friends and pray and study the Bible and worship together with a small group of people, first of all, I think that's fantastic. Fantastic. In fact, I think it's essential that we have those smaller communities of people. And I hope that each one of us, if we don't already have that, I pray and hope that each one of us will find those smaller communities of whatever it is, two, three, four, five, six people that we can build deep bonds with. I think that's important. And my job as a pastor is to try to find ways to nurture that. It has to be organic. But there are ways that perhaps we can... Create opportunities for organic community to develop. I think that's fantastic when we have these small groups of friends that we meet with and pray with and study the word with. But listen to me. That's different than gathering as a church. When we gather as a church in this type of environment, we are to welcome everyone. We are to accept everyone. We are to include everyone. We are to involve everyone. We are to serve everyone. We are to reconcile with everyone, including and especially people who are different from me. You see, if left to my own choice, I tend to choose to hang out with people who are exactly like me. I'm just telling you, if I'm going to choose who I'm going to hang out with, it's going to be people who are generally around my my age group, usually. People who, you know, have similar backgrounds and lifestyles that I have. I tend to hang out with people who have similar interests as me. You know, people that like the New Orleans Saints. I haven't found anybody here yet. I'm a very lonely person. I tend to hang out with people who pretty much look at the world the same way that I do. I tend to choose to hang out with people just like me. But when I come to this environment, Saturday nights, Sunday mornings, see, now I'm in a position where I am forced to rub shoulders with people who are different from me in a lot of ways. In this room right now, in this church, we got a lot of differences in this. I've only been here a month and a half. I can tell you there's a whole lot of differences amongst this, the people in this room. We've got multiple generations in this room, multiple life, different life experiences and backgrounds. To a certain extent, we have multiple ethnicities. I, for one, would like to see more of that. Lord, help us become even more of a multi-ethnic church. In this room, we have all kinds of varieties of, of views and perspectives on, on all kinds of stuff, theologically, politically. There's a whole lot of differences in this room. And I think God looks at this kind of, in, kind of environment and says, this is fantastic. Because it's in this type of environment where now we actually have opportunities to really grow. Because when there's so many differences, the closer we get together, the more there's gonna be friction, which does not intimidate God, by the way. God is not intimidated by conflict. I mean, there's a certain context, context in which God says, I've come to bring a sword. I mean, if you understand properly what he means. He's not just come so that everybody has a false sense of peace and gets along. There's going to be times where even being part of a church family, we're going to have some differences and sometimes disagreements. That's not an impediment to God's purpose and mission for us. Because it's in the midst of conflict, if we handle it correctly, where now I have an opportunity to learn how to be patient, and how to have some mercy, and how to humble myself and become less selfish and more others oriented. That can only happen when I'm around people who are different from me. If all I do is hang around clones of myself, it's gonna be easy. I mean, why wouldn't it be easy to hang around a bunch of Ryan posts? you know? (laughs) But in this type of environment, see, the, the church is, is where people who wouldn't ordinarily know one another and associate with one another, we get to associate with one another, and we get to know each other. The church is the place where we're in the midst of all of our differences, we learn how to unite as one under the banner of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, as I mentioned in my very first sermon here, that, that it's, it's when that's happening, that's what's going to convince the world that I'm sent by the Father and that you belong to me. Amen? Amen. So, so close, let me close with this. A few weeks ago, we began this weekly practice of beginning our service with this opening confession. It's something I've been doing for a few years now and something we're going to do here. I just, I think it's so important that we meet together and at the very beginning, we set the tone. This is why we're here. And one of those statements that we declare together is at the very beginning, we say, we are not consumers. We are worshipers. That's a defiant statement to the powers and principalities that hold our culture in bondage. In this room, in this place, we are not consumers. We live in a consumeristic age. We've been formed and shaped by the values of consumerism in our entire lives. Every one of us, myself included, to some degree, we've imbibed this mentality that this is who I am. I'm a consumer. It's how we approach everything. It's how we approach everything. Everything. Life at home, life at work, uh, what we buy, where we eat for lunch, how we, how we get entertained. Everything we do, we think like consumers. And what's, what we've got to be very careful about, it's very easy for us to take that consumer mentality and bring it into our church experience. And we start thinking this way. We start thinking, how can this church meet my needs? We start thinking, how can this church suit my preferences? I need to go find a church that has a cutting-edge music team that plays the kind of music that I like, I enjoy, that connects with me and resonates with me. And I need to find a church that has a cutting-edge youth program and kids program, and, and, and I need to find that church that will minister to me the way I want to be ministered to. It sounds, it makes sense in our culture. It does. But I'm telling you, it is totally antithetical to the call of Christ who says, deny yourselves take up your cross and follow me. We we never think this way about our families. Think about that. Like in three months, we're about to have what is my favorite holiday, Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. Christmas is wonderful, but Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And imagine, imagine somebody saying something like this. Imagine somebody who says, well, you know, last year I had Thanksgiving meal with my family, and it just, man, it did not turn out the way I wanted. You know, I, the turkey was not seasoned enough, you know, and, and it was overcooked. And once again, we had green bean casserole, that mushroom cream stuff. Who likes, who likes green bean casserole? I like it too, but just for the sake of the illustration. (laughs) But but they I mean they all the, the food was disgusting and just not well done. And Uncle Hank, poor old Uncle Hank, you know, prayed over the meal and he prayed so long the food got cold and there was too much talk about politics, not enough talk about sports, and and it was just so so much of a letdown. And so this coming Thanksgiving, I'm not going to eat Thanksgiving with my family. I'm going to go eat Thanksgiving with the family across the street. I mean, you you hear that. I mean, it's like totally absurd. We're like, this is your family. Like them or not, God placed you in that family. And so you're going to have Thanksgiving with your family no matter what. Suck it up because this does not exist for me. I belong to these people and they belong to me. See, that's a fundamental difference from a consumeristic mentality. And this is the way we've got to think about Village Church or any church that, whoever's listening, any church that, that, that is your home church. Village Church is not a business that exists to peddle products to religious consumers and increase some market share. That is not the way we think. We are a family that you belong to. Love us or hate us. I believe the Holy Spirit places us in a church family. And and our role is to, whether we think we're getting anything out of it or not, we show up and we're a part of it, and we engage, because we're not here with the mentality of what can I get out of it. We are here to exalt Jesus and learn to love one another. We're not consumers, we're worshipers. And, and we also say we're not here to be entertained. We're here to encounter the sacred. Entertainment, excitement, that's what Dodger games are for. And they're on a roll, aren't they? But, <laughs> but we come here not to be entertained, We come to be a part of a community of people, a community of difference. And we assemble together to worship and pray and study and receive teaching and encounter God together. And as we do that, week in, week out, for years, the Holy Spirit now is transforming us. And we are a people who are becoming a light in this area for Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.